Well, tonight we're, we're going to uh, look at the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. So beginning at verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, it is, uh, for me, a privilege to to travel to different countries. I encounter all sorts of audiences. I've been uh, recently to, to Australia, to Korea, to China, to South Africa, um, England, uh, United States, and Chile and Brazil. And, and, and the audiences always differ. And sometimes you have a translator, and I'm, I'm sure I won't need a translator uh, for you uh, but I do rather enjoy the, the Irish and Northern Irish accents. It's, it's definitely one of my favorites. And um, it's great to be here because uh, my dad was adopted and my mom ended up finding out that uh, his birth, um, the, the father who uh, was responsible for him biologically, uh, was an Irishman, which uh, may not be a surprise to some of you, but... Uh, that's how it was, and uh, so I count myself, uh, if people ask, Irish. And they, they will often say when I travel to other countries, oh, are you from Ireland? And I'm always a little bit surprised by that, given that I have a Canadian accent. So I do feel, if I'm not really one of you, I do feel like I'm among brothers and sisters. And uh, it's great to be able to speak on the Book of Romans. There are certain books that I probably would not like to address a young audience. You know, if you gave me Leviticus or Numbers or some Old Testament book that uh, some of us have had the privilege of being bored to death on an evening sermon by a new minister, um, you would probably uh, be feeling the same way I would. Uh, this doesn't appear to be exciting. The other problem, though, is that when you get given the book of Romans, the expectations are naturally quite high. Uh, it is Romans, after all, and who in the world can mess up the book of Romans? Well, believe me, there are people out there. I hope not to be one of those. But uh, the topic tonight, uh, I'm just going to breeze through. I'm not going to be looking at every verse in absolute painstaking detail, but I do want to just capture some basic thoughts to set us on our way. And the, the first thing I want you to think about is, is for those of us who've ever had a real enemy, how 
immensely taxing upon our psychology, upon our emotions, upon our, our whole life, a real enemy can be. Uh, some of us perhaps are too young to have ever had a real enemy, but there are people, maybe young, who at school know what it is to have a real enemy. Maybe you uh, live with a real enemy. Maybe you have an enemy who seeks to make your life miserable. And when you have an enemy, a real enemy, not just somebody who maybe dislikes you a little bit, but somebody who intensely dislikes you and seeks to make your life miserable, you quickly understand this can have a profound impact upon your daily living. Now, in the case of the gospel, what we seek to at least get people to understand is that they do in fact have an enemy that should cause them some sleeplessness, that should cause them some anxiety, that should cause them some problems of how they think and live, and that enemy is God. Anyone who is not in Christ, is an enemy of God, and God is, in a manner of speaking, their enemy. There is enmity between God and man because of sin. And the gospel is glorious because the gospel teaches us from the very beginning that since we have, in the past tense, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so God is no longer our enemy. God is our friend, and if we are indeed friends with God, if we have friendship with God, everything else in life really doesn't matter a whole lot. That's the truth of the gospel, that no matter what follows after you realize that the God of heaven and earth, the majestic, infinite, eternal, unchanging, loving, merciful, patient God, once he is your friend, once you have peace with him, nothing else really matters. Because God is for you. God is your friend, and he can be counted on. And the reason he is your friend is because of his son, Jesus Christ. And so what you realize as you become a Christian more profoundly than when you weren't a Christian is just how fortunate you are now that God is your friend because you never really did quite understand what the big deal was that he was your enemy. And so as Christians, you understand what a privilege it is that God is your friend. And, and in, the, in the Garden of Eden, some of the theologians in the 17th century called uh, Adam's relationship with God, amicitia cum Deo, which is friendship with God. That's how they described it. Adam was God's friend. As Adam walked in the garden, as he communed with God, the thing that was most striking to some of our famous theologians in the past was the fact that Adam possessed the mark of friendship with God. So Paul begins Romans 5, following from Romans 4 and 3 on justification, with the idea of peace. And this peace is not just simply a, a ceasing of warfare, but actually a friendship, as we will find out. And so we obtain access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's something about the fact that we have been justified and have peace with God that leads us to rejoice in hope. It draws us to God rather than away 
from God. And so when Adam sinned, what was his natural response? To hide from God. Now that that sin has been dealt with through Jesus Christ, our natural response is to be drawn to God, not away from God. And what is it that draws you away from God? It's your sin. So that even when you sin, there's something that draws you from God. Some of us will know that we've gone through this in our life. We've sinned, sometimes very badly. And instead of going to God, we've sort of let time heal. We thought, well, I'll take a few days off and then I'll go back to God. And, you know, I'll just start my Christian life again. And we think somehow that, you know, that will take care of things. But ultimately, we are to be drawn to God. And the only way in which we are drawn to God is the realization that God is our friend. We have peace with him. And we have access into the chamber of a monarch, of a king, who wants us to be in his presence. Now, what's so interesting about what I've said is, if God is your friend, if you have peace with God, then as I said earlier, nothing else really matters in this world. And what I mean by that is simply this. You can rejoice in sufferings if God is your friend, whereas if God is not your friend, the only view you can have of suffering is one of hatred and detestation. So notice what the text actually says. Verse 3, that we rejoice in our sufferings. That is not a case where the preacher says, well, actually what the Greek really means is that you tremble in your sufferings. The English is actually quite adequate here. You rejoice in your sufferings. How can that make any sense? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't unless you realize that God is your friend and that the sufferings that you go through are actually a gift from God. And that is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to you to suffer. Now, how can we say that suffering is something in which we can rejoice? For those of us who have suffered, we have to ask ourselves this question. Did we rejoice? Did it lead to rejoicing? Is there a way in which we could rejoice because of our suffering? And you have to think about the specific type of sufferings that you may have gone through. They may have been uh, intellectual sufferings, which are sometimes the worst types of sufferings. They may have been sufferings of anxiety. They may have been physical sufferings. My friend Ben has a bad toe. Uh, his wife's a doctor. You know, lucky him. My wife isn't a doctor. What happens when I have a bad toe? Probably the same thing as when Ben has a bad toe. Absolutely nothing. But sometimes we have physical suffering, sometimes mental suffering, sometimes sufferings that are a result of Christian persecution. And we're told that we rejoice in these sufferings. And it doesn't really make any sense. Unless you're prepared to acknowledge that if God is your friend, he knows precisely why you are suffering and how your suffering is ultimately going to help you. And the text actually tells us. Because suffering produces endurance. This is uh, good if you're 
uh, someone who does a little bit of exercise, you'll understand this. And, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So producing endurance is really what we're after, because that endurance will give us character. And so the point is that while we have been justified, and anyone who believes is justified, not everyone is actually on the same path whereby they have equal hope because not everybody has equal character and not everyone has endured to the same degree because not everybody has suffered to the same degree. So while we're all here justified freely by his grace and God is our friend, not everybody here has the same degree of hope. Young people generally do not possess a lot of hope unless they've suffered a lot. Old people produce a lot of hope in their thinking because they have character and character produces hope and they have suffered a lot more. So in your Christian life, what you're going to find is that some graces are cultivated. Now, if you want to run a marathon and you haven't really done any running before, uh, professional sports scientists, there's a sports scientist in Cape Town who's quite famous, his name's Tim Noakes, and uh, he talks about how you are to get to that stage where you can run a marathon if you are the type of person who sits on a couch and does really not much. And he says, if you are completely inactive, that may be some of you here, I'm not going to judge. He doesn't recommend running at all until week four of your training program, and then only for five minutes on a single day. So that's maybe an appealing training program, right? But then he says the stress fractures are the most common injury of beginning runners. And the easiest way to get a stress fracture is to overtrain. And so the table of the first 20 weeks of training is designed to ease newbies uh, into running. And what's interesting about that is that in the Christian life, generally God does not give you a type of suffering that is going to give you stress fractures in your soul, so to speak, right at the beginning. We may suffer to some degree at the beginning. In fact, I came to the Lord through a period of suffering, but it wasn't the type of suffering that absolutely crippled me. It was the type of suffering that ultimately did what the text says, that it produced endurance, so that when a similar bout of suffering came, I was able to deal with it based upon a previous endurance in that suffering. So that when you train to run 10 kilometers and you've already in the past run 8 kilometers, your ability to run that 10 kilometers is in part a result of you being able to run that 8 kilometers. Nobody gets tested by God in a manner that doesn't involve God's wisdom at the same time, since he is your friend. And that brings us back to something you must never forget in the suffering. God is your friend. And it's easy for us to forget that when we suffer. So you can't go to verse 3 and someone's suffering and you say, well, brother, are you rejoicing in your suffering? The Bible says that. I just had a friend, dear friend of mine. She's uh, a lady, she's South African, retired professor, and um, 
She's one of my biggest supporters in the church. You know, it's always nice to have a couple old ladies where you, you, the, the ground you, work, you walk on is hallowed ground and <laughs> your preaching is better than everyone else's preaching. You know, there's always nice to have a few of those old ladies because you'll always have a, a vast multitude of the other types of human beings. And her children went on an Alaska cruise and her son and her daughter and then her, her son-in-law went on those float planes and they crashed and she lost her son, her daughter, and her son-in-law. And I had to go over to her house and minister to her. And I can assure you, I did not say rejoice in your sufferings. That would have been, in a manner of speaking, cruel. What I'm hoping to get through to her in the coming weeks and months is ultimately this truth. God is her friend. And she has to make sense of everything in light of the fact that God is her friend. Otherwise, she will look upon this horrible, horrible tragedy in a manner that will blow up her Christian life, whereby she will start to have every conceivable doubt there is. And she probably will to some degree. So what we find is that endurance produces character and character produces hope. So you see, hope isn't an automatic thing in the Christian life. It's a cultivated grace based upon certain prerequisites. And notice, hope will not put us to shame because this hope is not an easy thing. Anything that is given to you too easily in life generally isn't worth a whole lot. You know how the things that you work hardest for are most meaningful? Uh, that's the Christian life. If you go through suffering and you're able to go through suffering and endure and you produce character, the hope that you have that follows from that is going to be a qualitatively different type of hope than the person who just becomes a Christian and says, oh, I'm going to heaven. It's just not the same thing. The hope that is born out of intense ordeals and walking with God through fiery trials, through highs, through lows, is qualitatively different in its character. And that is something that will take, for many people, years, even decades to cultivate. But that's the type of hope that does not put you to shame because you have recognized through all of that that what? God is your friend. And how do we know that? Look at the answer. It nicely sandwiches everything in because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I said this earlier to some ministers, and so I apologize to Ben for quoting myself again, but it's actually from Augustine. And he said that God had two gifts to give us, his Son and the Holy Spirit. And once he had given us his Son, and once he had given us the Holy Spirit, there was nothing else left for God to give. He gave all that he had. And this text is teaching us that God has given us his Son, and he has given us his Spirit, and everything else that you receive is really just the outworking of those two gifts, because that's all that God has to give. So that is where your Christian life is to lead you, to the type of hope that will ultimately satisfy you because it is born out of a context of character 
perseverance, suffering, and that's why you can rejoice because your hope is as fixed as a foundation upon which the church is built. It's a supernatural hope. And some Christians have a hope, but I do not believe it's the type of hope that we're reading about here. It's a sort of false hope, an easy hope. It's not the hope that you find here in Romans 5. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but hope ultimately will vindicate. So let's carry on. We'll, we'll try and get through the, the next uh, six, uh, six verses, 6 to 11. Um, and, and what you find is that Paul starts to repeat himself about some key truths. And you understand that in chapter 3, he talked about justification. In chapter 4, he talks about justification. In chapter 5, he talks about justification. And that's because, in part, he's, he's building a case for salvation and God's vindication and glory. But the other reason, I think, is because we are generally by nature quite spiritually stupid and need to be told the same thing over and over again. My my sister's married to a, a guy who was a paramedic, but he, had, he tried his hand at being one of the, the people you phone. So in Canada, it's 911. I think it's 999 here. I should remember that if I get in trouble in my room. Uh, why, where, where is this person? Um, and he was talking to uh, a man who phoned in absolute hysterics. You see, men also can be hysterical. And he says, if you want to help your wife, please listen to me. He had to say that five times. If you really want to help your wife, you need to listen to me. If you want to help your wife, please listen to me. That's basically us in terms of the gospel. We need to be told over and over and over again because we are hysterical. I was talking today about how so many preachers I know are hypochondriacs. They're it's, it's partly, I think, because they're so stressed out that their minds start to go funny and they don't think straight about anything and they always fear the worst. It's like, oh, this person's attacking me, um, this is happening, and so anything physical, it's just an extension of the pastoral. And they're absolute maniacs, most preachers. Most. There are some of us <laughs> who escape. But notice... Verse 6 actually says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And weakness is one of the greatest blessings that God gives us in the Christian life because it really makes us aware of our need of God. I was in Hong Kong once. I'm never going back to Hong Kong, by the way, so if you ever... Um, want a, a reference for what Hong Kong is like, I would say stay as far away from that place as possible. I've gone to Hong Kong twice and both thoroughly been, shall we say, not so happy. I did get some nice fitted suits, mind you, and a, a, an, an expensive fake watch, but that's another story. <laughs> the second time I went to Hong Kong, I got the worst food poisoning ever. I really felt like I was gonna die. I crawled onto the plane. And I mean, it was so bad that anyone who's had bad, bad food poisoning is really being sympathetic with me right now. And I remember thinking how weak I was. And I remember thinking for the first time, I really want to go to heaven. 
That's how bad it was. Whereas, you know, when life's good and you go for a run around the lake today, go out for a nice dinner, have some fish, life is good. You know, I'm not really thinking, I really want to go to heaven. Of course, I have to say that to you, I want to go to heaven because, you know, I'm speaking on these things. But you know when you really want to go to heaven? It's when you're so utterly weak. And so there are elderly people, right? And they say, listen, I just want to go and be with the Lord. And I'm beside them. And I'm like, really? You know, do you really? When they, they do because they are so weak. But the spiritual weakness that God also gives to us is, is also connected with the bodily weaknesses that God sometimes gives to us to help us to understand these realities. And so what ends up happening is a physical malady will take away certain desires, like to eat. But also spiritual weakness, where we realize that we are so spiritually weak and need God, that spiritual weakness takes away the desires of this world and makes us depend more on God. So Jesus died for weak people. And that is why we read in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that weakness is the way. That when we are weak, then we are strong. That Christ is crucified in weakness. That God's way for us is weakness. But notice the point that Paul cannot get away with, that Jesus died for sinners. That is, people who are spiritually weak and understand that they are weak. Now, since we have been justified, you see that in verse 9, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And what this means is that justification leads to keeping friends. Because notice, if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, what the text is trying to teach us here in this brings this idea from the very beginning to a close is that you can have absolute assurance that God is your friend because Christ did not die for strong people or righteous people, but he died for sinners. And that was my mother's problem. I recently baptized my mom in Cape Town and she's getting on for 67 and it was quite meaningful because in Cape Town when I was a young boy and went to school, she would she would read the Bible to me and sing songs, and I grew up in a nominally Christian house, but it was my mom who basically gave me whatever Christian influence that I had. And for so many years, in the recent years, she says, you know, I just can't be a Christian. I'm such a sinner. And it's hard to get through to someone that that's the prerequisite for being a Christian is understanding that you are a sinner, and understanding that that's precisely the type of people that God desires to be friends with. Because we were enemies, and yet we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more shall we be saved by his life. Now, notice, more than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, what does this mean? It means that God is determined to be your friend because God has done the most remarkable thing that God can do. 
So what is the gospel? It is God doing the most remarkable thing that God can do. It's taking his treasured possession, his son, and killing him. And his son laying down his life for you, who are an enemy, in order to make you friends. Why would God go through all of that trouble only to have you not rejoice in your friendship with God? So let me just close with a few uh, brief points of application. The first is that reconciliation is meant to make you happy. So may I come back to having an enemy? Have you ever had an enemy and then been reconciled? What a relief that is. It's, it's easy having friends. I don't worry about my friends. I know my friends like me. I like them. There's no stress. But having an enemy and then being reconciled to that enemy, it's amazing the weight that's taken off your shoulders. And when that happens in life, that's really just a small picture of what's happened between you and God. You are to rejoice because you have nothing to be ashamed about anymore. That's the teaching of Romans 5. But then we may want to ask ourselves, when was the last time that you showed love to an enemy and made them a friend? So if you have had an enemy, did you show them love in order to win them? Because how does God win us to friendship? Through love. And that's precisely as Christians how we are going to win our enemies to friendship is through love. That will be the primary way. You doing something that will shock your enemy to a degree that they will have no answer but to be reconciled to you. So it may be a question for some of you. And the second point that I wanted to make is, can I be sure of the love of God? And the qualification for something such as salvation, the qualification for salvation is something that you all do exceedingly well. You sin. Christ died for sinners. You know, to qualify for the Olympics, you need certain times. Mostly you need certain times. There, there was one of the, my favorite episodes of the Sydney Olympics where Eric the Eel Musambani from Equatorial New Guinea, you know, I, some of you have probably seen this, and if you go on YouTube, listen to the Roy and HD commentary, these Australian commentators, where Eric the Eel's in his blue Speedo, you know, and who wears a Speedo to the Olympics? It's those long bodysuits, but here's this guy from Equatorial New Guinea, you know, and he jumps in, and he starts out splashing around, and he barely makes it back. I mean, so, yeah, okay, he didn't need a qualifying time, and it's because he came from Equatorial New Guinea that he was allowed to go to the Olympics as part of raising awareness in countries. But you generally need to qualify for the Olympics with certain times. The easy thing for us to understand as Christians is that what qualifies us to be friends with God is acknowledging that we sin not acknowledging that we have to get to a certain level of righteousness. So then finally, the, wrong, the one in the wrong should be the initiator of reconciliation, but in the gospel, it's the other way around. This happened to me the other day. I think it was my daughter. It's usually my daughter who's sinning in our house. She's 13, you know. Cut her some slack. She lost her 
iPod. Um, and she turned into a maniac. And I remember I was really, I'd been praying about things and God had just been answering my prayers. And so I thought, Lord, please help me to find her iPod so that I can teach her a lesson. And as soon as I made that prayer, my wife says, oh, I found it. And I said, yes, I was so happy. I'm like, I'm going to teach her a lesson. And I'm like, all right, Katie, you sit down now. We're going to teach you a lesson. She's like, what? Like, yeah, and I gave her a lesson. Let me tell you, I thought I'm going to use this one. Probably sinned in the amount of pride I had and praying and being answered. So I'm not sure how well it worked out for me in the end. But I felt like she should have come to me and been, yeah, Dad, I'm just so sorry. How could I have gone so crazy? How could I not have just had peace in my heart knowing that God is doing this and, and you know, I'll eventually find it and it's not a big deal. You know, I'm thinking that, which is totally unrealistic as a father. You'll find out one day that your kids will do something and you'll get them in trouble for it and then you'll have to reconcile with them because... Very rarely do they take it upon themselves to reconcile with you. And what that teaches you a lot about is actually with God. He is the one initiating reconciliation with us, even though we're the ones who are in the wrong. And what happens in life is you get these little pictures of salvation in your relationships. And how you respond in those relationships is really a response to God. Do I love my enemies? That means I've taken Roman 5 seriously. Do I rejoice in my sufferings? That means I understand perseverance and character and hope. Do I initiate reconciliation with someone who's in the wrong? That means I've understood that God is the initiator with me. And so, as we conclude, that's really the importance of getting the gospel right because you can't get anything else right without that. All right, well, we'll close there.